0: Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. All righty, hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmakers Show. So today we have a, a really exciting founder. You know, we have a founder that has been Really thinking through the you know the whole entrepreneurial uh, journey, you know, since he was in high school, and he's done several companies, you know, that he's had the opportunity to uh, to exit. You know, now he's uh, on his latest one, which we will talk about as well. But I think we're going to be learning quite a bit, you know, quite a bit on successes, on failures, on building a strong mission around your business, also on being thoughtful when it comes about fundraising. And really discovering, you know, the power of entrepreneurship early on. So, again, super inspiring episode ahead of us. And without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Perez Wallace. Welcome to the show. Hey, thank you so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. So, originally, you grew up there in Northern California. So, give us a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up?
1: Yeah, I had a a great childhood, but definitely a humble one. Uh, I'm a son of a disabled single mom, so grew up in Section 8 housing. But although she didn't graduate high school, she understood the value of education. So got me in the best private schools uh, starting before kindergarten and and made it all the way through Harvard Business
0: School. I mean, that's pretty unbelievable. Like how, like being able to do that, especially on financial aid. I mean, that is absolutely remarkable. So uh, unbelievable. Hats off to your mom.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, she was an incredible inspiration, incredibly strong woman and someone who's really inspired me through everything I've done.
0: How do you think that has influenced you and also your entrepreneurial drive?
1: I mean, I think from a personal side, you know, I spent 15 years um, trying to improve the world for women and families, specifically around women's health. And it's something I saw my mom struggle a lot a bit about when we were growing up. And so that's something that really inspired me. Um, And then I think just, you know, she never, ever, ever quit. Um, She just worked so incredibly hard and did whatever it took to, to make it happen, which in my mind is kind of what makes a good entrepreneur.
0: So in your case, it was high school when you got the bug and you got to really discover how beautiful the whole entrepreneurial thing was. So tell us about this.
1: Yeah. So uh, all throughout high school, I worked full time in a bike shop. I was already riding bikes then um, to help support myself and my family. And I got the idea, you know, in the late, uh, late 1990s uh, in the Bay Area to, to start an online online bike shop so i i got a couple friends together we put a we put a e uh, e-commerce bike specific e-commerce site together and one day while i was in high school and this is before you could you know check the check the your email and what was going on from your phone um i get home and it turns out i had made more money on this e-commerce site while in school and in class that day than i did monthly working at the bike shop and the light bulb kind of went off and was like okay one, I need to work for myself. Two, I need to own it. Three, I need to be able to, to make money while I'm, um, while I'm not working. Um, and that really is what uh, set me down the path towards entrepreneurship.
0: So you eventually ended up going to Harvard. And uh, there at Harvard, while well, you were doing your dual degree, you know, basically that's the moment where, you know, really, you know, obviously the, the dual degree here, you were doing business uh, and such business. And then also, let me see here, you were doing social entrepreneurship. And public leadership. So, how is that, uh, just out of curiosity, how is that blend? How is that combination of those two degrees? Why did you think it was interesting to blend those two degrees?
1: Yeah, I had made the decision by the time that I had made it to business school that I only wanted to work on things that were going to positively impact the world, you know, based on all the generosity that I had received from financial aid and folks helping me out to that. I really wanted to, to use everything I was given to give back. And so I spent three years getting my, my MBA at Harvard Business School, but also across the river, as they say, in Cambridge at uh, the Kennedy School of Government. Um, specifically, work on a fellowship program in social entrepreneurship. So, had the opportunity to talk to some of the best nonprofit leaders uh, in the in the in the world, folks like Jeffrey Canada and Wendy Kopp, um, and ask them kind of what inspired them and and what sort of organizations could really create a positive impact in the world. And kind of three years of of that plus, you know. Uh, class in government and and obviously my business school classes kind of decided that the way I wanted to try was to create for-profit businesses with a double bottom line. So companies that could do incredibly well, that could make money, that could fund themselves, but if they were successful could have a really large impact on society um, and change it for the better. And so my first foray actually started my last year at Harvard Business School. I figured out statistically I couldn't fail out at that point. So I stopped going to classes and started sneaking into Harvard Medical School and MIT to learn about genomics and launched company Good Start Genetics out of my dorm room
0: at Harvard Business School. So how did the idea come knocking to you and how did you go about bringing it to life?
1: Yeah, it was a it was a combination of the excitement at that point. Um, the human genome had recently been cracked, and the first kind of uh, cost effective uh, development of gene sequencing had come out. Everyone said it was going to be you know a multi billion dollar industry, but no one knew how to commercialize it. And I found myself at the perfect intersection of being at the business school, having access to the medical school at MIT, um, with a lot of the scientists who had actually invented the technology. So really got. Interested, got nerdy on it, learned enough, met the right people and said, Hey, look, um, there's real opportunity here to, to make an impact. And then did the business research with, with, with uh, the resource, of the business school to figure out where the best place to commercialize it was. And the best place to commercialize this next generation sequencing happened to be uh, in in uh, diagnostic testing, specifically carrier screening, testing mom and dad before they had children to see if they're at risk of passing a genetic disorder. So entered the Harvard Business School business plan competition um, with that business. Ended up coming in second, um, raised a little bit of money, and that kind of set me on the on the Odyssey. And in in, uh, in 2008 to to build the business.
0: I mean, you ended up raising quite a bit of money. How did you raise in total for the business prior to the acquisition?
1: yeah so in debt and equity we raised over uh, eighty million um for that business. uh you know we started out with a series A with the idea of you know getting the patents, setting up the lab, um building the people uh to be able to to make it reality and then we did series b we put we put debt on top of that the business grew incredibly quickly uh unfortunately, um you know we definitely had some hiccups along the way, and a couple deals um, that we promised the market that we couldn't deliver on which really set us down a different path so you know saw the the towering heights we were actually you know a few a few months of going public we had we were actually working with the golden Sachs to go public and then one of these deals went sideways um, then it was a very different situation um, by that time I had left to start uh, Ovia health and was on the board um, trying to navigate uh, you know the the kind of uh, diminishing, Situation of the company, and I learned. You know, I, everyone's like, "Oh, you must be so upset about that." I go, "No, everything that I'm able to do now was based on the lessons that we learned on the on the growth and the and you know the eventual kind of sale of that company."
0: Now, in this case, you know, like when the when the, when they failed, you know, IPO happened because of you know those uh, those initiatives that you had gone going on, you know, it didn't it didn't go as planned. How was that the process like? I mean, how how do you guys go about? doing the transaction that you ended up doing, you know, uh, and when it was acquired by Invitai and, 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 and what did you learn from, from the full cycle of a business that you start out of school all the way to the company making it to the finish line?
1: I mean, a lot of lessons, I think, uh, a few of them, you know, I was very young when I started that business and this was, you know, before kind of the rise of the of the 20 year old CEO. Um, and so I felt really compelled to hire kind of a professional, you know, a professional team that had done it before, you know, the gray hair. Um, and frankly, they never understood the business and the business model. And they made decisions that I would have never made as the entrepreneur who wrote the business plan who really deeply understood and it's pretty simple, you know, we were a low cost, high volume play. And they played it as a high cost, low volume. Um, And ultimately, when the technology matured and the price started going down, um, there wasn't enough volume to sustain us. I understood that from the beginning. uh, And I wanted to get out, you know, and sell the business when we were at that intersection right before the technology became a commodity. Um, But I think a lot everyone around the table that that didn't understand that got greedy and said, hey, we got to do this um, and held on for too long. So I think uh, a lot of it is around um, you know really understanding your timing, um, getting out when you can, especially from your from your first business, and really trusting in yourself, right? I mean, I had so much more confidence in my ability to stand up to, you know, older, more successful. Uh, more experienced folks at Ovia Health and really do it my way and have confidence that I knew versus a good start. I said, "Hey, you know, I, I I think this, but maybe I'm wrong because they've done it before." Turns out that doing it before doesn't mean that you know what you're doing.
0: Yeah. Now, in your case, you know, you did it again, and that was with Ovia Health. So, in this case, you know, like after having pushed, you know, good start for you know the company was like about you were you were involved for about nine years, almost ten years. I'm sure that you you really understood well. Uh, what that cycle or what that uh, you know journey would look like you know with a hyper growth business now in this case in two thousand and twelve is when you got started again with Ovia health so why did you think that the problem of Ovia health was meaningful enough for you to take the uh, another crack at uh, at entrepreneurship here
1: yeah, I mean so you know Ovia health became the largest digital health platform for for women and families um, and dealt with you know kind of the the piece of the market. That I dealt with, that that we focused on a good start, but also a lot bigger. And just just for clarification, so I was a good start for four years, and then left to start Ovia and joined the board, and then was there kind of through through the until the company was was acquired on the board while running Ovia. Um, you know, and this was this was this was part of it. I knew that women's health, right? I, I used to joke that hey, I found this incredible niche market. Um, you know, it turns out there's 3.5 billion of them. They're called women. They need healthcare, and there's a massive market, and they really need help because. You know, the men who have been making decisions over the past forever have uh, ignored and underinvested in women's health. And it's left this massive opportunity. And I remember going around in Silicon Valley and there were, you know, investors who are investing in uh, there was an app that said, yo that raised millions of dollars and you know that got announced and I was meeting with them and I say hey you know we want to help women's health we think it's amazing they go yeah this is too niche of a market for us I'm like guys it's 50% of the population in the US you know I also see that as an amazing thing right um, industries that can't get funded business ideas that can't get funded it means there's a big opportunity there a lot of times and because you know having a white male dominated venture industry that mainly invests in you know white males Coming with a very different perspective uh, and at a very different target meant it was harder to raise money, but also meant that we were we had a total light space um, because no one else had gotten funded there, and no one was looking at it.
0: So, in terms of then getting funding, I mean, how how did you guys get it? Sounds like it was a little bit more challenging.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, we raised slowly but surely. You know, we our first round was a, a you know million dollar round, and then a million and a half, and then million point eight, and then 3.5, and then 10. And then, you know, we we just slowly but surely got what we needed. Um, And at the time, you know, we really wish that, uh, you know, it had gone faster, and we could raise faster. But it turned out that That time with my co-founders to get to know each other, to get to work together, to be that small team, to get to trust each other, to really have to use um, smarts over resources to solve our problems and to grow was what absolutely allowed us to scale incredibly quickly and ultimately have a fantastic life-changing exit.
0: Hey, guys. So pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired. You don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com, and we would love to take a look at helping you out. Now, obviously, incredible exit, you know, nine-figure exit. But um, how much capital did you guys raise prior to the acquisition?
1: Yeah, we only raised uh, a little over $20 million. So, you know, pretty pretty small amount in today's kind of venture back uh, uh, environment.
0: How do you think that having a strong mission, you know, around the company like you guys uh, had, how do you think that helped you to surround yourself with the right type of talent and then also with the right type of investors?
1: Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I really believe deeply in is, you know, you got to walk the walk and talk the talk. So, you know, we wanted to make the world a better place for women and families. Um, and part of that was being the best place for for women to work. And we decided very early on um, you know, that we wanted to be the best place for women in tech to work in Boston. And so we invested a lot in that. That was everything from the way we did hiring um, through, you know, our maternity uh, and and family leave policy um, and who was in leadership. You know, when we exited the company, it was a leadership team of five. Four out of those five were women, Um, four out of those five were were diverse. Um, So we really created the team that we needed and thought that uh, you know was the team that would ultimately understand our customers, be able to execute for them and care deeply around it. And that allowed us to get the absolute best talent, which allowed us to build the absolute best products, which allow us to win again and again and again against much bigger companies and and more well-funded companies because we really knew who we were and who we were serving.
0: And then when it comes to obviously second acquisition, you know that you were able to experience uh, this time it was acquired the company Avia Health by LabCorp, but what do you think you got? You know when it comes to timing and when is the right time to go through an acquisition process?
1: Yeah, my my co-founders and I very early on had a very frank discussion around what we wanted, and I always give this advice to folks when they're about to exit. This is the first time where it's an incredible, it would probably ever as an entrepreneur, where it is a 100% selfish and personal decision. Every decision, you're doing things for your investors, you're doing things for your employees, you're doing things for your customers, you're doing things for your, uh, you know, for the company generally. And then it comes to a point of, Hey, do you want to sell this business? And regardless of what anyone says in any acquisition process, it comes down to a one on one discussion where the person in charge of making the acquisition discussion looks you in the eye and says, do you want to sell this business? Um, and you need to say yes. <laughs> um, you know. And so we had a discussion early on in the company when we were founding it about what are we trying to get out of it personally? What is the number that if we get to personally, that we will say yes? Regardless of what else is going on, and ultimately we got to that point. And you know, I think there was some hesitation. We were growing at three hundred percent year over year at that point. Um, you know, the markets were were frothy. We were getting a lot of offers for for funding. Um, you know, and uh, I had to really pull the line with my co founders to say, "Look, we made this agreement. We've hit this point. Let's take these chips off the table and move on." Um, and ultimately. You know, we didn't even sell at the right month. We sold it the right day. You know, the, you know what happened to the markets, especially in the digital health side. So many businesses are going out of business now and, and you know, valuations have come down, you know, by an order of magnitude. Um, so that decision and that discipline about sticking through what we committed and what we promised to each other really, really paid off and I think is really key. And I give that advice to kind of all entrepreneurs I talk to is have it in mind, have that discussion, be on the same page and be ready to be very selfish in that decision.
0: Obviously, you know, great timing. End of 2021, right before the macro environment started to unfold the way that it has. So in this case for you, you know, you went on National Cycling League, NCL. Why Why the National Cycling League?
1: Yeah, you know, I, I've obviously been a cyclist for, for, for my entire life. Um, You know, growing up in, in Marin County and, and riding the, the trails there where mountain biking started. Um, so I'd always had a passion and then thinking about after my exit, what I wanted my legacy to be, um, and what other industries I could really have an impact on beyond, beyond healthcare and women's health. Um, and frankly, I just kind of was disgusted by the behavior of a lot of these leagues. You know, one statistic that I think says, says it all is, you know, in the U S 80% black and brown players. Um, and as a, a few weeks ago, um, not a single majority a majority minority owner um, across the NFL or NBA uh, right and so having generations of black and brown boys and and you know all women saying hey I want to be a professional athlete but I but but I can't own a team I thought was really wrong and something that you know sports sports are meant to inspire and I didn't see a lot of inspiration so thinking about that, and as as the impact side, as I said, you know, for-profit businesses that create social impact, and then look at the business side, um, and seeing an industry, uh, you know, the most, uh, the second most popular participatory industry, uh, fifty million people bike in the U.S., two billion across the world, the most popular viewer sport in the world, three point five billion people watch the Tour de France. It's also the most attended sports event in person. And no kind of professional league, uh, here in the U S. And my guess is, you know, you can't, uh, name a single professional cyclist. And so really seeing that opportunity and seeing that as a way to be able to impact, um, you know, kids' self-esteem, um, and the opportunities for, you know, millions of kids growing up that don't see anyone like them in the owner's suite, um, was enough to say, yeah, let's, let's try to do this. Let's tackle this, uh, this next, this next challenge.
0: So what's the business model here? How do you guys make money?
1: Yeah, we make money like any sports team. Um, you know, there's a there's a well-tried-and-true path for how sports make money. It's ticketing, uh, merchandising, broadcast rights, sponsorship, um, you know, the vari- that, the gamut that you see the NBA, NFL, MLB using to make money. Um, you know, we're just doing it at a smaller scale to start out with, but eventually we'll, we'll hit that scale as we, uh, you know, slowly but surely gain traction in those 3.5, billion global cycling viewers
0: now in this case you know like how do you how do you think about fundraising because i mean for the last uh, companies you raised quite a bit of money but for this one you know it sounds like you've been a little more thoughtful when it comes to taking money from external investors why so
1: yeah, so we've really been focused uh, and one of our mission, uh, you know, the core of our mission is to be the first majority, minority uh, and, uh, and female owned professional sports league with a focus on gender equity and sustainability. Um, and so what this means is we have to be very thoughtful about who we raise money money from. I mean, you know, ultimately, it's going to be a coalition of folks, um, but we but we think it's really important to align with you know, our values and frankly, the values of future sports fans who can say, hey. I want to be a fan of a league that I can be proud of. Um, And part of that is this diverse ownership. And so what this means is, you know, we do have institutional investors, but we also have a broad community of angel investors. Um, You know, one of the big kind of sad, but big lessons I've learned, right, is there's just not that many black and brown people um, who can write seven figure checks, you know, like from their own account. It's just that's not the way the economic opportunity has been divided here in the U.S. Um, And so thinking about how to create a community of folks who are able to write five-figure checks or even four-figure checks to get us to where we need to be to be able to, you know, be right alongside, you know, folks like the UFC or F1 or, or the NFL. So we're really having to rethink our model in terms of kind of the traditional fundraising to get there. But it's really been working because people really understand the value of ownership, the role that sports plays in their lives, and how exciting excited they are to to be part of something like this
0: that's amazing now, as we're thinking about here uh being intentional and being thoughtful, what about the vision? you know if you were to go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world where the vision of the company is fully realized, what would that world look like
1: yeah i mean it's it's uh not to not to simplify it right but but I think it is uh, turning on your your local radio station, and they do their five minute um, news news overview, and one of the scores that they include on that is is you know the NCL home team for you, um, you know. So I think that's that's kind of one side of it. The other side of it is that you know when when we say uh, you know that we're not the only. Majority, minority, and female owned sports league. And that we're not the only kind of gender equal sports league. The way that the way the points work is each team has a men's squad and a women's squad. And it's the combination of the women's points and the men's points at the end of every race that makes up the team's points, right? It's so simple. I always like to say, you know what would happen if the WNBA played the first half of a, of a basketball game and the men played the second half? You know what we call that? Basketball. It'd be that easy, right? You wouldn't think about it. Um, But I think, you know, that this idea just kind of like, you know, the story I was telling at at Ovia Health, this idea of women and men's sports being two different leagues and that women are going to be able to compete. Against these leagues that have a hundred years of history and a hundred billion dollars in marketing is just ridiculous, right and to have an equal playing field, you need to start out equally. you need to start out valuing um, both genders equally because then it erases all of you know all the stigma and all the other things that have, that have caused many of these kind of women's sports to, to not grow as, as quickly as men's sports.
0: now for a company like this, I mean how, how do you think about it? you know, different, like you've been used to hyper growth companies, you know, where you've raised a bunch of money, as we were saying before, but how, how do you think about a company like NCL, like when it comes to the execution, what makes it, what makes the execution perhaps different?
1: Yeah. I mean, it has been a a hard transition, um, to say the least. You know, we raised a seven and a half million dollar seed round, very public. We had some massive professional athletes uh, involved in the fundraising and it was off to the races. You know, so we've only been around for about 18 months. Um, You know, we've already raised over nine million. We've had our first season broadcast globally, tens of thousands of people at our events, um, more than that, you know, watching um, globally. So really on the spotlight. And it's, it's hard. You know? it's, it's a very, very different thing than running a software company. One thing, for example, that seems dumb, but, but it's uh, you know, a hard-learned hard lesson, right? There's no CEOs in sports, right? There's coaches, there's GMs, there's commissioners. Um, and I learned why because it is impossible to run you know we have two professional teams of 32 athletes our three events that are some of the most logistically difficult events out there fundraising um making decisions at the league level partnerships dealing with you know the the olympic committee for cycling here in the us and globally um you know and then all the things that come on with with team ownership you know and so uh uh last, you know the, 6 months ago um i hired a ceo uh, to to you know run the to run the business because ultimately we needed to divide and conquer, and so I'm chairman and president, and she is uh you know the CEO of the business. I wish I had learned that sooner, right and there's a lot of these things that you know it's it's not necessarily about how fast the business can scale it's about how fast you can scale <laughs> and I'm continually feeling like I'm behind, even though we can look back and say we've accomplished so much in such a short amount of time. You know, you just are always thinking, I wish I knew then what I know now. We could have we moved even faster. I could have avoided these mistakes that I made.
0: So then as we're thinking, you know, on that topic, if I was to put you into a time machine and I was to bring you back to that moment where you were still at Harvard and figuring out what would be the next company, you no, know? and let's say you had the opportunity of having a sit down with that younger self and being able to tell that younger Paris one piece of advice. Before launching a business, what would that be and why, given what you know now?
1: Well, I mean, obviously, the one piece of advice, the one word would have been Bitcoin. But short of that, um, but short of that, you know, I think it's, it's really about people um, and not finding, I mean, yes, finding the best people and, and, you know, all that, but finding people that you want to be friends with for the rest of your life. Finding people that you will wake up every morning excited that you get to spend the next you know ten to twelve hours with them um, day after day after day, people that you can trust and really people that uh you can build something meaningful about and that you can celebrate with and you can cry with when things that don't go well. Um, I think that that is is really the the kind of the golden rule. I think so many times when I have hired someone because of their experience um, or you know, some accomplishment that they have or because they seem like the right fit. But in my heart I know that they're not someone that I, you know, ultimately uh clicks with. And that's not saying they're good or bad people. They're not just like my fit. It's never gone well. Um and I think that that's really the lesson I wish I knew. Um especially going back to kind of the Good Start experience and saying, hey, we need to hire, you know, the, the gray hair and, and, and go this direction because I don't know what I'm doing. Versus saying, hey, let's surround ourselves with these entrepreneurial folks who can, you know, make the future happen, um, you know, it was a real mistake. And, and you know, I'm, I'm still, I still haven't learned from it. I still do it. You know, that was one of the things we hired a lot of uh, cycling specific folks when we started in the NCL. And it turned out, you know, we would have been much better off going the, you know, the, the tech founder route or the tech, uh, tech worker route, um, because, you know, those folks are just really Solution oriented and future oriented versus trying to replicate, you know, the things that have happened in the past. So I would I would probably have that conversation with myself after saying for the, you know, invest in Bitcoin.
0: Now, for the people that are listening that would love to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to do so?
1: Yeah, I'm on I'm on LinkedIn. the um, uh, Paris Wallace. Uh, I think I'm the only um, smiling uh, bald guy I named Paris Wallace on LinkedIn. So easy enough to find there. You know, would love to would love to talk with uh, you know young folks who are who are trying to find their passion, getting their businesses off the ground. If I could be helpful, and then investors who want to be, um, or you know, advisors or other folks who are passionate about sports and want to be part of this mission. Um, you know, and think that uh, sports should have diverse ownership, should have gender equity, and should be sustainability focus. would love to have conversations with those folks.
0: Amazing. Well, hey, Paris, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us.
1: Yeah, really appreciate the time and the conversation.
0: If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help,